Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. Hello and good evening. In tonight's show, I'm going to bring to you part two of The Active Side of Infinity by my friend and mentor, Dr. Carlos Castaneda. For those of you who missed part one in last week's show, you can go to the Jackalope Radio archives and download the show from there. I now present to you part two of The Active Side of Infinity. A strange anxiety suddenly possessed me and made me jump out of my seat. As if I had no volition of my own, I approached the old man and immediately began a long tirade on how much I knew about medicinal plants and shamanism among the American Indians of the plains and their Siberian ancestors. As a secondary theme, I mentioned to the old man that I knew that he was a shaman. I concluded by assuring him that it would be thoroughly beneficial for him to talk to me at length. If nothing else, I said petulantly, we could swap stories. You tell me yours and I'll tell you mine. The old man kept his eyes lowered until the last moment. Then he peered at me. I am Juan Matus, he said, looking me squarely in the eyes. My tirade shouldn't have ended by any means, but for no reason that I could discern, I felt that there was nothing more I could have said. I wanted to tell him my name. He raised his hand to the height of my lips, as if to prevent me from saying it. At that instant, a bus pulled up to the bus stop. The old man muttered that it was the bus he had to take. Then he earnestly asked me to look him up so we could talk with more ease and swap stories. There was an ironic smirk on the corner of his mouth when he said that. With an incredible agility for a man his age, I figured he must have been in his 80s, he covered in a few leaps the 50 yards between the bench where he was sitting and the door of the bus. As if the bus had stopped just to pick him up, it moved away as soon as he had jumped in and the door had closed. After the old man left, I went back to the bench where Bill was sitting. What did he say? What did he say? He asked excitedly. He told me to look him up and come to his house to visit, I said. He even said that we could talk there. But what did you say to him to get him to invite you to his house, he demanded. I told Bill that I had used my best sales pitch and that I had promised the old man to reveal to him everything I knew about medicinal plants from the point of view of my reading. Bill obviously didn't believe me at all. He accused me of holding out on him. I know the people around this area, he said belligerently, and that old man is a very strange fart. He doesn't talk to anybody, Indians included. Why would he talk to you, a perfect stranger? You're not even cute. It was obvious that Bill was annoyed with me. I couldn't figure out why, though. I didn't dare ask him for an explanation. He gave me the impression of being a bit jealous. Perhaps he felt that I had succeeded where he had failed. However, my success had been so inadvertent that it didn't mean anything to me. Except for Bill's casual remarks, I didn't have any conception of how difficult it was to approach that old man, and I couldn't have cared less. At the time, I found nothing remarkable in the exchange. It baffled me that Bill was so upset about it. Do you know where his house is? I asked him. I haven't the foggiest idea, he answered curtly. I've heard people from this area say that he doesn't live anywhere, 
that he just appears here and there unexpectedly, but that's a lot of horseshit. He probably lives in some shack in Nogales, Mexico. Why is he so important, I asked him. My question made me gather enough courage to add, You seem to be upset because he talked to me. Why? Without any ado, he admitted that he was chagrined because he knew how useless it was to try to talk to that man. That old man is as rude as anyone can be, he added. At best, he stares at you without saying a word when you talk to him. At other times, he doesn't even look at you. He treats you as if you didn't exist. The one time I tried to talk to him, he brutally turned me down. Do you know what he said to me? He said, if I were you, I wouldn't waste my energy opening my mouth. Save it. You need it. If he weren't such an old fart, I would have punched him in the nose. I pointed out to Bill that to call him an old man was more a figure of speech than an actual description. He didn't really appear to be that old, although he was definitely old. He possessed a tremendous vigor and agility. I felt that Bill would have failed miserably if he had tried to punch him in the nose. That old Indian was powerful. In fact, he was downright scary. I didn't voice my thoughts. I let Bill go on telling me how disgusted he was at the nastiness of that old man and how he would have dealt with him had it not been for the fact that the old man was so feeble. Who do you think could give me some information about where he might live, I asked him. Perhaps some people in Yuma, he replied, a bit more relaxed. Maybe the people I introduced you to at the beginning of our trip. You wouldn't lose anything by asking them. Tell them that I sent you to them. I changed my plans right then, and instead of going back to Los Angeles, went directly to Yuma, Arizona. I saw the people to whom Bill had introduced me. They didn't know where the old Indian lived, but their comments about him inflamed my curiosity even more. They said that he was not from Yuma, but from Sonora, Mexico, and that in his youth he had been a fearsome sorcerer who did incantations and put spells on people, but that he had mellowed with age, turning into an ascetic hermit. They remarked that although he was a Yaqui Indian, he had once run around with a group of Mexican men who seemed to be extremely knowledgeable about bewitching practices. They all agreed that they hadn't seen those men in the area for ages. One of the men added that the old man was contemporaneous with his grandfather, but that while his grandfather was senile and bedridden, the sorcerer seemed to be more vigorous than ever. The same man referred me to some people in Hermosillo, the capital of Sonora who might know the old man and be able to tell me more about him. The prospect of going to Mexico was not at all appealing to me. Sonora was too far away from my area of interest. Besides, I reasoned that I was better off doing urban anthropology after all, and I went back to Los Angeles. But before leaving for Los Angeles, I canvassed the area of Yuma, searching for information about the old man. No one knew anything about him. As the bus drove to Los Angeles, I experienced a unique sensation. On the one hand, I felt totally cured of my obsession with fieldwork or my interest in the old man. On the other hand, I felt a strange nostalgia. It was truthfully something I had never felt before. Its newness struck me profoundly. It was a mixture of anxiety and longing, as if I were missing something of tremendous importance. I had the clear sensation as I approached Los Angeles that whatever had been acting on me around Yuma began to fade with distance. But its fading only increased my unwarranted longing. Second story. The unavoidable appointment. There was something that kept nagging at me in the back of my mind. I had to answer a most important letter I had received, and I had to do it at any cost. 
What had prevented me from doing it was a mixture of indolence on my part and a deep desire to please. My anthropologist friend, who was responsible for my meeting Don Juan Matus, had written me a letter a couple of months earlier. He wanted to know how I was doing in my studies of anthropology and urged me to pay him a visit. I composed three long letters. On rereading each of them, I found them so trite and obsequious that I tore them up. I couldn't express in them the depth of my gratitude, the depth of my feelings for him. I rationalized my delay in answering with a genuine resolve to go and see him and tell him personally what I was doing with Don Juan Matus. But I kept postponing my imminent trip because I wasn't sure what it was that I was doing with Don Juan. I wanted someday to show my friend real results. As it was, I had only vague sketches of possibilities, which, in his demanding eyes, wouldn't have been anthropological fieldwork anyway. One day, I found out that he had died. His death brought me to one of those dangerous, silent depressions. I had no way to express what I felt, because what I was feeling was not fully formulated in my mind. It was a mixture of dejection, despondency, and abhorrence at myself for not having answered his letter, for not having gone to see him. I paid a visit to Don Juan Matu soon after that. On arriving at his house, I sat down on one of the crates under his ramada and tried to search for words that would not sound banal to express my sense of dejection over the death of my friend. For reasons incomprehensible to me, Don Juan knew the origin of my turmoil and the overt reason for my visit to him. Yes, Don Juan said dryly, I know that your friend, the anthropologist who guided you to meet me, has died. For whatever reasons, I knew exactly the moment he died. I saw it. His dry statements jolted me to my foundations. I saw it coming a long time ago. I even told you about it, but you disregarded what I said. I'm sure that you don't even remember it. I remembered every word he had said, but it had no meaning for me at the time he had said it. Don Juan had stated that an event deeply related to our meeting, but not part of it, was the fact that he had seen my anthropologist friend as a dying man. I saw death as an outside force already opening your friend, he had said to me. Every one of us has an energetic fissure, an energetic crack below the navel. That crack, which sorcerers call the gap, is closed when a man is in his prime. He had said that normally all that is discernible to the sorcerer's eye is a tenuous discoloration in the otherwise whitish glow of the luminous sphere. But when a man is close to dying, that gap becomes quite apparent. He had assured me that my friend's gap was wide open. What is the significance of all this, Don Juan? I had asked perfunctorily. The significance is a deadly one, he had replied. The spirit was signaling to me that something was coming to an end. I thought it was my life that was coming to an end, and I accepted it as gracefully as I could. It dawned on me much, much later that it wasn't my life that was coming to an end, but my entire lineage. I didn't know what he was talking about, but how could I have taken all that seriously? As far as I was concerned, it was, at the time he said it, like everything else in my life, just talk. Your friend himself told you, though not in so many words, that he was dying, Don Juan said. You acknowledged what he was saying the way you acknowledged what I said, but in both cases you chose to bypass it. I had no comments to make. I was overwhelmed by what he was saying. I wanted to sink into the crate I was sitting on, to disappear, 
swallowed up by the earth. It's not your fault that you bypass things like this, he went on. It's youth. You have so many things to do, so many people around you. You are not alert. You never learned to be alert, anyway. In the vein of defending the last bastion of myself, my idea that I was watchful, I pointed out to Don Juan that I had been in life-and-death situations that required my quick wit and vigilance. It wasn't altogether that I lacked the capacity to be alert, but that I lacked the orientation for setting an appropriate list of priorities. Therefore, everything was either important or unimportant to me. To be alert doesn't mean to be watchful, Don Juan said. For sorcerers, to be alert means to be aware of the fabric of the everyday world that seems extraneous to the interaction of the moment. On the trip that you took with your friend before you met me, you noticed only the details that were obvious. You didn't notice how his death was absorbing him, and yet something in you knew it. I began to protest, to tell him that what he was saying wasn't true. Don't hide yourself behind banalities, he said in an accusing tone. Stand up. If only for the moment you are with me, assume responsibility for what you know. Don't get lost in the extraneous fabric of the world around you, extraneous to what's going on. If you hadn't been so concerned with yourself and your problems, you would have known that that was his last trip. You would have noticed that he was closing his accounts, seeing the people who helped him, saying goodbye to them. Your anthropologist friend talked to me once, Don Juan went on. I remembered him so clearly that I wasn't surprised at all when he brought you to me at that bus depot. I couldn't help him when he talked to me. He wasn't the man I was looking for. But I wished him well from my sorcerer's emptiness, from my sorcerer's silence. For this reason, I know that on his last trip, he was saying thank you to the people who counted in his life. I admitted to Don Juan that he was so very right, that there had been so many details that I had been aware of, but that they hadn't meant a thing to me at the time. Such as, for instance, my friend's ecstasy in watching the scenery around us. He would stop the car just to watch, for hours on end, the mountains in the distance, or the riverbed, or the desert. I discarded this as the idiotic sentimentality of a middle-aged man. I even made vague hints to him that perhaps he was drinking too much. He told me that in dire cases, a drink would allow a man a moment of peace and detachment, a moment long enough to savor something unrepeatable. That was, for a fact, the trip for his eyes only, Don Juan said. Sorcerers take such a trip, and in it, nothing counts except what their eyes can absorb. Your friend was unburdening himself of everything superfluous. I confessed to Don Juan that I had disregarded what he had said to me about my dying friend, because at an unknown level, I had known that it was true. Sorcerers never say things idly, he said. I am most careful about what I say to you or to anybody else. The difference between you and me is that I don't have any time at all, and I act accordingly. You, on the other hand, believe that you have all the time in the world, and you act accordingly. The end result of our individual behaviors is that I measure everything I do and say, and you don't. I conceded that he was right, but I assured him that whatever he was saying did not alleviate my turmoil or my sadness. I blurted out then uncontrollably every nuance of my confused feelings. I told him that I wasn't in search of advice. I wanted him to prescribe a sorcerer's way to end my anguish. I believed I was really interested in getting from him some natural relaxant 
an organic Valium, and I said so to him. Don Juan shook his head in bewilderment. You are too much, he said. Next you're going to ask for a sorcerer's medication to remove everything annoying from you, with no effort at all on your part, just the effort of swallowing whatever is given. The more awful the taste, the better the results. That's your Western man's motto. You want results. One potion and you're cured. Sorcerers face things in a different way, Don Juan continued. Since they don't have any time to spare, they give themselves fully to what's in front of them. Your turmoil is the result of your lack of sobriety. You didn't have the sobriety to thank your friend properly. That happens to every one of us. We never express what we feel. And when we want to, it's too late. Because we have run out of time. It's not only your friend who ran out of time. You too ran out of it. You should have thanked him profusely in Arizona. He took the trouble to take you around, and whether you understand it or not, in the bus depot he gave you his best shot. But the moment when you should have thanked him, you were angry with him. You were judging him. He was nasty to you, whatever. And then you postponed seeing him. In reality, what you did was to postpone thanking him. Now you're stuck with a ghost on your tail. You'll never be able to pay what you owe him. I understood the immensity of what he was saying. Never had I faced my actions in such a light. In fact, I had never thanked anyone. Ever. Don Juan pushed his barb even deeper. Your friend knew that he was dying, he said. He wrote you one final letter to find out about your doings. Perhaps unbeknownst to him, or to you, you were his last thought. The weight of Don Juan's words was too much for my shoulders. I collapsed. I felt that I had to lie down. My head was spinning. Maybe it was the setting. I had made the terrible mistake of arriving at Don Juan's house in the late afternoon. The setting sun seemed astoundingly golden, and the reflections on the bare mountains to the east of Don Juan's house were gold and purple. The sky didn't have a speck of a cloud. Nothing seemed to move. It was as if the whole world were hiding, but its presence was overpowering. The quietness of the Sonoran Desert was like a dagger. It went to the marrow of my bones. I wanted to leave, to get in my car and drive away. I wanted to be in the city, get lost in its noise. You are having a taste of infinity, Don Juan said with grave finality. I know it because I have been in your shoes. You want to run away, to plunge into something human, warm, contradictory, stupid, who cares? You want to forget the death of your friend, but infinity won't let you. His voice mellowed. It has gripped you in its merciless clutches. What can I do now, Don Juan, I asked. The only thing you can do, Don Juan said, is to keep the memory of your friend fresh, to keep it alive for the rest of your life, and perhaps even beyond. Sorcerers express in this fashion the thanks that they can no longer voice. You may think it is a silly way, but that's the best sorcerers can do. It was my own sadness, doubtless, which made me believe that the ebullient Don Juan was as sad as I was. I discarded the thought immediately. That couldn't be possible. Sadness for sorcerers is not personal, Don Juan said, again erupting into my thoughts. It is not quite sadness. It's a wave of energy that comes from the depths of the cosmos and hits sorcerers when they are receptive, when they are like radios capable of catching radio waves. 
The sorcerers of olden times who gave us the entire format of sorcery believe that there is sadness in the universe as a force, a condition, like light, like intent, and that this perennial force acts especially on sorcerers because they no longer have any defensive shields. They cannot hide behind their friends or their studies. They cannot hide behind love or hatred or happiness or misery. They can't hide behind anything. The condition of sorcerers, Don Juan went on, is that sadness for them is abstract. It doesn't come from coveting or lacking something, or from self-importance. It doesn't come from me. It comes from infinity. The sadness you feel for not thanking your friend is already leaning in that direction. My teacher, the Nawal Julian, he went on, was a fabulous actor. He actually worked professionally in the theater. He had a favorite story that he used to tell in his theater sessions. He used to push me into terrible outbursts of anguish with it. He said that it was a story for warriors who had everything and yet felt the sting of the universal sadness. I always thought he was telling it for me, personally. Don Juan then paraphrased his teacher, telling me that the story referred to a man suffering from profound melancholy. He went to see the best doctors of his day, and every one of those doctors failed to help him. He finally came to the office of a leading doctor, a healer of the soul. The doctor suggested to his patient that perhaps he could find solace and the end of his melancholy in love. The man responded that love was no problem for him, that he was loved perhaps like no one else in the world. The doctor's next suggestion was that maybe the patient should undertake a voyage and see other parts of the world. The man responded that, without exaggeration, he had been in every corner of the world. The doctor recommended hobbies, like arts, sports, etc. The man responded to every one of his recommendations in the same terms. He had done that and had no relief. The doctor had the suspicion that the man was possibly an incurable liar. He couldn't have done all those things, as he claimed. But being a good healer, the doctor had a final insight. Ah, he exclaimed, I have the perfect solution for you, sir. You must attend a performance of the greatest comedian of our day. He will delight you to the point that you will forget every twist of your melancholy. You must attend a performance of the great Garrick. Don Juan said that the man looked at the doctor with the saddest look you can imagine and said, Doctor, if that's your recommendation, I am a lost man. I have no cure. I am the great Garrick. Third story. Saying thank you. Warriors don't leave any debts unpaid. Don Juan said. What are you talking about, Don Juan, I asked. It is time that you square certain indebtedness you have incurred in the course of your life, he said. Not that you will ever pay in full, mind you, but you must make a gesture. You must make a token payment in order to atone, in order to appease infinity. You told me about your two friends who meant so much to you, Patricia Turner and Sandra Flanagan. It's time for you to go and find them and to make to each of them one gift in which you spend everything you have. You have to make two gifts that will leave you penniless. That's the gesture. I don't know where they are, Don Juan, I said, almost in a mood of protest. To find them is your challenge. 
In your search for them, you will not leave any stone unturned. What you intend to do is something very simple, and yet nearly impossible. You want to cross over the threshold of personal indebtedness, and in one sweep be free, in order to proceed. If you cannot cross that threshold, there won't be any point in trying to continue with me. But where did you get the idea of this task for me, I asked. Did you invent it yourself, because you think it is appropriate? I don't invent anything, he said, matter-of-factly. I got this task from infinity itself. It's not easy for me to say all this to you. If you think that I'm enjoying myself pink with your tribulations, you're wrong. The success of your mission means more to me than it does to you. If you fail, you have very little to lose. What, your visits to me? Big deal. But I would lose you, and that means to me losing either the continuity of my lineage or the possibility of your closing it with a golden key. Don Juan stopped talking. He always knew when my mind became feverish with thoughts. I have told you over and over that warriors are pragmatists, he went on. They are not involved in sentimentalism or nostalgia or melancholy. For warriors there is only struggle, and it is a struggle with no end. If you think that you have come here to find peace, or that this is a lull in your life, you're wrong. This task of paying your debts is not guided by any feelings that you know about. It is guided by the purest sentiment, the sentiment of a warrior who is about to dive into infinity. And just before he does, he turns around to say thank you to those who favored him. You must face this task with all the gravity it deserves, he continued. It is your last stop before infinity swallows you. In fact, unless a warrior is in a sublime state of being, infinity will not touch him with a ten-foot pole. So don't spare yourself. Don't spare any effort. Push it mercilessly, but elegantly, all the way through. I had met the two people Don Juan had referred to as my two friends who meant so much to me while going to junior college. I used to live in the garage apartment of the house belonging to Patricia Turner's parents. In exchange for room and board, I took care of vacuuming the pool, raking the leaves, putting the trash out, and making breakfast for Patricia and myself. I was also the handyman in the house as well as the family chauffeur. I drove Mrs. Turner to do her shopping, and I bought liquor for Mr. Turner, which I had to sneak into the house and then into his studio. He was an insurance executive who was a solitary drinker. He had promised his family that he was not going to touch the bottle ever again after some serious family altercations due to his excessive drinking. He confessed to me that he had tapered off enormously, but that he needed a swig from time to time. His studio was, of course, off-limits to everybody except me. I was supposed to go in to clean it, but what I really did was hide his bottles inside a beam that appeared to support an arch in the ceiling in the studio, but that was actually hollow. I had to sneak the bottles in, and sneak the empties out, and dump them at the market. Patricia was a drama and music major in college and a fabulous singer. Her goal was to sing in musicals on Broadway. It goes without saying that I fell head over heels in love with Patricia Turner. She was very slim and athletic, a brunette with angular features and about a head taller than I am, my ultimate requisite for going bananas over any woman. I seemed to fulfill a deep need in her, the need to nurture someone especially after she realized that her daddy trusted me implicitly. She became my little mommy. I couldn't even open my mouth without her consent. She watched me like a hawk. 
She even wrote term papers for me, read textbooks, and gave me synopses of them. And I liked it, but not because I wanted to be nurtured. I don't think that that need was ever part of my cognition. I relished the fact that she did it. I relished her company. She used to take me to the movies daily. She had passes to all the big movie theaters in Los Angeles, given to her father courtesy of some movie moguls. Mr. Turner never used them himself. He felt that it was beneath his dignity to flash movie passes. The movie clerks always made the recipients of such passes sign a receipt. Patricia had no qualms about signing anything, but sometimes the nasty clerks wanted Mr. Turner to sign. And when I went to do that, they were not satisfied with only the signature of Mr. Turner. They demanded a driver's license. One of them, a sassy young guy, made a remark that cracked him up, and me too, but which sent Patricia into a fit of fury. I think you're Mr. Turd, he said, with the nastiest smile you could imagine, not Mr. Turner. I could have sloughed off the remark, but then he subjected us to the profound humiliation of refusing us entrance to see Hercules, starring Steve Reeves. Usually we went everywhere with Patricia's best friend, Sandra Flanagan, who lived next door with her parents. Sandra was quite the opposite of Patricia. She was just as tall, but her face was round, with rosy cheeks and a sensuous mouth. She was healthier than a raccoon. She had no interest in singing. She was only interested in the sensual pleasures of the body. She could eat and drink anything, and digest it. And the feature that finished me off about her, after she had polished off her own plate, she managed to do the same with mine, a thing that, being a picky eater, I had never been able to do in all my life. She was also extremely athletic, but in a rough, wholesome way. She could punch like a man and kick like a mule. As a courtesy to Patricia, I used to do the same chores for Sandra's parents that I did for hers, vacuuming their pool, raking the leaves from their lawn, taking the trash out on trash day, and incinerating papers in a flammable trash. That was the time in Los Angeles when the air pollution was increased by the use of backyard incinerators. Perhaps it was because of the proximity or the ease of those young women that I ended up madly in love with both of them. I went to seek advice from a very strange young man who was my friend, Nicholas Van Houten. He had two girlfriends, and he lived with both of them, apparently in a state of bliss. He began by giving me, he said, the simplest advice, how to behave in a movie theater if you had two girlfriends. He said that whenever he went to a movie with his two girlfriends, all his attention was always centered on whoever sat to his left. After a while, the two girls would go to the bathroom, and on their return, he would have them change the seating arrangement. Anna would sit where Betty had been sitting, and nobody around them was the wiser. He assured me that this was the first step in a long process of breaking the girls into a matter-of-fact acceptance of the trio situation. Nicholas was rather corny, and he used that trite French expression, ménage à toi. I followed his advice and went to a theater that showed silent movies on Fairfax Avenue in Los Angeles with Patricia and Sandy. I sat Patricia to my left and poured all my attention on her. The two girls went to the bathroom, and when they returned, I told them to switch places. I started then to do what Nicholas Van Houten had advised, but Patricia would not put up with any nonsense like that. She stood up and left the theater, offended, humiliated, and raving mad. I wanted to run after her and apologize, but Sandra stopped me. Let her go, she said with a poisonous smile. She's a big girl. She has enough money to get a taxi and go home. 
I fell for it and remained in the theater kissing Sandra, rather nervously, and filled with guilt. I was in the middle of a passionate kiss when I felt someone pulling me backward by the hair. It was Patricia. The row of seats was loose and tilted backward. Athletic Patricia jumped out of the way before the seats where we were sitting crashed on the row of seats behind. I heard the frightened screams of two movie watchers who were sitting at the end of the row, by the aisle. Nicholas Van Houten's tip was miserable advice. Patricia, Sandra, and I returned home in absolute silence. We patched up our differences in the midst of very weird promises, tears, the works. The outcome of our three-sided relationship was that, in the end, we nearly destroyed ourselves. We were not prepared for such an endeavor. We didn't know how to resolve the problems of affection, morality, duty, and social mores. I couldn't leave one of them for the other, and they couldn't leave me. One day, at the climax of a tremendous upheaval, and out of sheer desperation, all three of us fled in different directions, never to see one another again. I felt devastated. Nothing of what I did could erase their impact on my life. I left Los Angeles and got busy with endless things in an effort to placate my longing. Without exaggerating in the least, I can sincerely say that I fell into the depths of hell. I believed never to emerge again. If it hadn't been for the influence that Don Juan had on my life and my person, I would never have survived my private demons. I told Don Juan that I knew that whatever I had done was wrong, that I had no business engaging such wonderful people in such sordid, stupid shenanigans that I had no preparation to face. What was wrong, Don Juan said, was that the three of you were lost egomaniacs. Your self-importance nearly destroyed you. If you don't have self-importance, you have only feelings. Humor me, he went on, and do the following simple and direct exercise that could mean the world to you. Remove from your memory of those two girls any statements that you make to yourself, such as, she said this or that to me, and she yelled, and the other one yelled, at me and remain at the level of your feelings. If you hadn't been so self-important, what would you have had as the irreducible residue? My unbiased love for them, I said, nearly choking. And is it less today than it was then? Don Juan asked. No, it isn't, Don Juan, I said in truthfulness, and I felt the same pang of anguish that had chased me for years. This time, embrace them from your silence, he said. Don't be a meager asshole. Embrace them totally for the last time. But intend that this is the last time on earth. Intend it from your darkness. If you are worth your salt, he went on, when you make your gift to them, you'll sum up your entire life twice. Acts of this nature make warriors airborne, almost vaporous. Following Don Juan's commands, I took the task to heart. I realized that if I didn't emerge victorious, Don Juan was not the only one who was going to lose out. I would also lose something, and whatever I was going to lose was as important to me as what Don Juan had described as being important to him. I was going to lose my chance to face infinity and be conscious of it. The memory of Patricia Turner and Sandra Flanagan put me in a terrible frame of mind. The devastating sense of irreparable loss that had chased me all these years was as vivid as ever. When Don Juan exacerbated that feeling, I knew for a fact that there are certain things that can remain with us, in Don Juan's terms, for life, and perhaps beyond. I had to find Patricia Turner and Sandra Flanagan.
Don Juan's final recommendation was that if I did find them, I could not stay with them. I could have time only to atone, to envelop each of them with all the affection I felt, without the angry voices of recrimination, self-pity, or egomania. I embarked on the colossal task of finding out what had become of them, where they were. I began by asking questions of the people who knew their parents. Their parents had moved out of Los Angeles, and nobody could give me a lead as to where to find them. There was no one to talk to. I thought of putting a personal ad in the paper, but then I thought that perhaps they had moved out of California. I finally had to hire a private investigator. Through his connections with official offices of records and whatnot, he located them within a couple of weeks. They lived in New York, a short distance from one another, and their friendship was as close as it had ever been. I went to New York and tackled Patricia Turner first. She hadn't made it to stardom on Broadway the way she had wanted to, but she was part of a production. I didn't want to know whether it was in the capacity of a performer or as management. I visited her in her office. She didn't tell me what she did. She was shocked to see me. What we did was just sit together and hold hands and weep. I didn't tell her what I did either. I said that I had come to see her because I wanted to give her a gift that would express my gratitude, and that I was embarking on a journey from which I did not intend to come back. Why such ominous words, she asked, apparently genuinely alarmed. What are you planning to do? Are you ill? You don't look ill. It was a metaphorical statement, I assured her. I'm going back to South America, and I intend to seek my fortune there. The competition is ferocious, and the circumstances are very harsh, that's all. If I want to succeed, I will have to give all I have to it. She seemed relieved and hugged me. She looked the same, except much bigger, much more powerful, more mature, very elegant. I kissed her hands, and the most overwhelming affection enveloped me. Don Juan was right. Deprived of recriminations, all I had were feelings. I want to make you a gift, Patricia Turner, I said. Ask me anything you want, and if it is within my means, I'll get it for you. Did you strike it rich, she said and laughed. What's great about you is that you never had anything and you never will. Sandra and I talk about you nearly every day. We imagine you parking cars, living off women, etc., etc. I'm sorry we can't help ourselves, but we still love you. I insisted that she tell me what she wanted. She began to weep and laugh at the same time. Are you going to buy me a mink coat? She asked me between sobs. I ruffled her hair and said that I would. If you don't like it, you take it back to the store and get the money back, I said. She laughed and punched me the way she used to. She had to go back to work, and we parted after I promised her that I would come back again to see her, but that if I didn't, I wanted her to understand that the force of my life was pulling me every which way, yet I would keep the memory of her in me for the rest of my life, and perhaps beyond. I did return, but only to see from a distance how they delivered the mink coat to her. I heard her screams of delight. That part of my task was finished. I left, but I wasn't vaporous, the way Don Juan had said I was going to be. I had opened up an old wound, and it had started to bleed. It wasn't quite raining outside. It was a fine mist that seemed to penetrate all the way to the marrow of my bones. Next, I went to see Sandra Flanagan. She lived in one of the suburbs of New York that is reached by train. I knocked on her door. 
Sandra opened it and looked at me as if I were a ghost. All the color drained out of her face. She was more beautiful than ever, perhaps because she had filled out and looked as big as a house. Why, you, 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 she stammered, not quite capable of articulating my name. She sobbed, and she seemed indignant and reproachful for a moment. I didn't give her the chance to continue. My silence was total. In the end, it affected her. She let me in, and we sat down in her living room. What are you doing here, she said, quite a bit calmer. You can't stay. I'm a married woman. I have three children, and I'm very happy in my marriage. Shooting her words out rapidly like a machine gun, she told me that her husband was very dependable, not too imaginative, but a good man, that he was not sensual, that she had to be very careful because he tired very easily when they made love, that he got sick easily and sometimes couldn't go to work, but that he had managed to produce three beautiful children, and that after her third child, her husband, whose name seemed to be Herbert, had just simply quit. He didn't have it anymore, but it didn't matter to her. I tried to calm her down by assuring her over and over that I had come to visit her only for a moment, that it was not my intention to alter her life or to bother her in any way. I described to her how hard it had been to find her. I have come here to say goodbye to you, I said, and to tell you that you are the love of my life. I want to make you a token gift, a symbol of my gratitude and my undying affection. She seemed to be deeply affected. She smiled openly the way she used to. The separation between her teeth made her look childlike. I commented to her that she was more beautiful than ever, which was the truth to me. She laughed and said she was going on a strict diet, and if she had known that I was coming to see her, she would have started her diet a long time ago. But she would start now, and I would find her the next time as lean as she had always been. She reiterated the horror of our life together and how profoundly affected she had been. She had even thought, in spite of being a devout Catholic, of committing suicide. But she had found in her children the solace that she needed. Whatever we had done were quirks of youth that would never be vacuumed away, but had to be swept under the rug. When I asked if there was some gift that I could make to her as a token of my gratitude and affection for her, she laughed and said exactly what Patricia Turner had said that I didn't have a pot to piss in, nor would I ever have one, because that's the way I was made. I insisted that she name something. Can you buy me a station wagon where all my children would fit, she said, laughing. I want a Pontiac, or an Oldsmobile, with all the trimmings. She said that, knowing in her heart of hearts that I could not possibly make her such a gift. But I did. I drove the dealer's car, following him as he delivered the station wagon to her the next day, and parked nearby, hidden by some trees. From there I heard her surprise, but congruous with her sensual being, her surprise was not an expression of delight. It was a bodily reaction, a sob of anguish, of bewilderment. She cried, but I knew that she was not crying because she had received the gift. She was expressing a longing that had echoes in me. I crumpled in the seat of the car. On my train ride to New York and my flight to Los Angeles, the feeling that persisted was that my life was running out. It was running out of me like clutched sand. I didn't feel in any way liberated or changed by saying thank you and goodbye. Quite the contrary, I felt the burden of that weird affection more deeply than ever. I felt like weeping. What ran through my mind over and over were the titles that my friend Rodrigo Cummings had invented for books that were never to be written. 
He specialized in writing titles. His favorite was, We'll All Die in Hollywood. Another was, We'll Never Change. And my favorite, the one that I bought for $10, was From the Life and Sins of Rodrigo Cummings. All those titles played in my mind. I was Rodrigo Cummings, and I was stuck in time and space. And I did love two women more than my life, and that would never change. And, like the rest of my friends, I would die in Hollywood. I told Don Juan all of this in my report of what I considered to be my pseudo-success. He discarded it shamelessly. He said that what I felt was merely the result of indulging and self-pity, and that in order to say goodbye and thank you and really mean it and sustain it, sorcerers had to remake themselves. Vanquish your self-pity right now, he demanded. Vanquish the idea that you are hurt, and what do you have as the irreducible residue? What I had as the irreducible residue was the feeling that I had made my ultimate gift to both of them, not in the spirit of renewing anything or harming anyone, including myself, but in the true spirit that Don Juan had tried to point out to me, in the spirit of a warrior whose only virtue, he had said, is to keep alive the memory of whatever has affected him, whose only way to say thank you and goodbye was by this act of magic, of storing in his silence whatever he has loved. Fourth story, the jump into the abyss. There was only one trail leading to the flat mesa. Once we were on the mesa itself, I realized that it was not as extensive as it had appeared when I had looked at it from a distance. The vegetation on the mesa was not different from the vegetation below, faded green woody shrubs that had the ambiguous appearance of trees. At first I didn't see the chasm. It was only when Don Juan led me to it that I became aware that the mesa ended in a precipice. It wasn't really a mesa, but merely the flat top of a good-sized mountain. The mountain was round and eroded on its east and south faces. However, on part of its west and north sides, it seemed to have been cut with a knife. From the edge of the precipice, I was able to see the bottom of the ravine, perhaps 600 feet below. It was covered with the same woody shrubs that grew everywhere. A whole row of small mountains to the south and to the north of that mountaintop gave the clear impression that they had been part of a gigantic canyon, millions of years old, dug out by a no longer existing river. The edges of that canyon had been erased by erosion. At certain points, they had been leveled with the ground. The only portion still intact was the area where I was standing. It's solid rock, Don Juan said, as if he were reading my thoughts. He pointed with his chin toward the bottom of the ravine. If anything were to fall down from this edge to the bottom, it would get smashed to flakes on the rock down there. This was the initial dialogue between Don Juan and myself that day on that mountaintop. Prior to going there, he had told me that his time on Earth had come to an end. He was leaving on his definitive journey. His statements were devastating to me. A most peculiar interplay between different levels of my awareness took place then. Don Juan his cohort Don Hanaro, two of his apprentices, Pablito and Nestor, and I had climbed to that mountaintop. Pablito, Nestor, and I were there to take care of our last task as apprentices, to jump into an abyss, a most mysterious affair, which Don Juan had explained to me at various levels of awareness, but which has remained an enigma to me to this day. 
Don Juan jokingly said that I should get my writing pad and start taking notes about our last moments together. He gently poked me in the ribs and assured me, as he hid his laughter, that it would have been only proper, since I had started on the warrior's path by taking notes. Don Hanaro cut in and said that other warriors before us had stood on that same flat mountaintop before embarking on their journey to the unknown. Don Juan turned to me and, in a soft voice, said that soon I would be entering into infinity by the force of my personal power, and that he and Don Hanaro were there only to bid me farewell. Don Hanaro cut in again and said that I was there also to do the same for them. Once you have entered into infinity, Don Juan said, you can't depend on us to bring you back. Your decision is needed then. Only you can decide whether or not to return. I must also warn you that few warriors survive this type of encounter with infinity. Infinity is enticing beyond belief. A warrior finds that to return to the world of disorder, compulsion, noise, and pain is a most unappealing affair. You must know that your decision to stay or to return is not a matter of a reasonable choice, but a matter of intending it. If you choose not to return, he continued, you will disappear as if the earth had swallowed you. But if you choose to come back, you must tighten your belt and wait like a true warrior until your task, whatever it might be, is finished, either in success or in defeat. A very subtle change began to take place in my awareness then. I started to remember faces of people who I wasn't sure I had met. Strange feelings of anguish and affection started to rise within my being. Don Juan's voice was no longer audible. I was suddenly possessed by the most unbearable love for those persons, whoever they may have been. My feelings for them were beyond words. I sensed their presence, as if I had lived another life before, or as if I were feeling for people I had known in a dream. I sensed that their outside forms shifted. They began by being tall and ended up petite. What was left intact was their essence, the very thing that produced my unbearable longing for them. Don Juan came to my side and said to me, The agreement was that you remain in the awareness of the daily world. His voice was harsh and authoritative. Today, you are going to fulfill a concrete task, he went on, the last link of a long chain, and you must do it in your utmost mood of reason. I'd never heard Don Juan talk to me in that tone of voice. He was a different man at that instant, yet he was thoroughly familiar to me. I meekly obeyed him and went back to the awareness of the world of everyday life. I didn't know that I was doing this, however. To me, it appeared on that day as if I had acquiesced to Don Juan out of fear and respect. Don Juan spoke to me next in a tone I was accustomed to. What he said was also very familiar. He said that the backbone of a warrior is humbleness and efficiency, acting without expecting anything and withstanding anything that lies ahead of him. I went at that point through another shift in my level of awareness. My mind focused on a thought or a feeling of anguish. I knew then that I had made a pact with some people to die with them, and I couldn't remember who they were. I felt, without the shadow of a doubt, that it was wrong that I should die alone. My anguish became unbearable. Don Juan spoke to me. We are alone, he said. That's our condition. But to die alone is not to die in loneliness. I took big gulps of air to erase my tension. As I breathed deeply, my mind became clear. 
The great issue with us males is our frailty, he went on. When our awareness begins to grow, it grows like a column, right on the midpoint of our luminous being, from the ground up. That column has to reach a considerable height before we can rely on it. At this time in your life, as a sorcerer, you easily lose your grip on your new awareness. When you do that, you forget everything you have done and seen on the warrior's path, because your consciousness shifts back to the awareness of your everyday life. I have explained to you that the task of every male sorcerer is to reclaim everything he has done and seen on the warrior's path while he was on new levels of awareness. The problem of every male sorcerer is that he easily forgets because his awareness loses its new level and falls to the ground at the drop of a hat. I understand exactly what you're saying, Don Juan, I said. Perhaps this is the first time I have come to the full realization of why I forget everything and why I remember everything later. I have always believed that my shifts were due to a personal condition. I know now why these changes take place. Yet I can't verbalize what I know. Don't worry about verbalizations, Don Juan said. You'll verbalize all you want in due time. Today, you must act on your inner silence, on what you know without knowing. You know to perfection what you have to do. But this knowledge is not quite formulated in your thoughts yet. On the level of concrete thoughts or sensations, all I had were vague feelings of knowing something that was not part of my mind. I had, then, the clearest sense of having taken a huge step down. Something seemed to have dropped inside me. It was almost a jolt. I knew that I had entered into another level of awareness at that instant. Don Juan told me then that it is obligatory for a warrior to say goodbye to all the people he leaves behind. He must say his goodbye in a loud and clear voice so that his shout and his feelings will remain forever recorded in those mountains. I hesitated for a long time, not out of bashfulness, but because I didn't know whom to include in my thanks. I had completely internalized the sorcerer's concept that warriors can't owe anything to anyone. Don Juan had drilled a sorcerer's axiom into me. Warriors pay elegantly, generously, and with unequaled ease every favor, every service rendered to them. In this manner, they get rid of the burden of being indebted. I had paid, or I was in the process of paying, everyone who had honored me with their care or concern. I had reviewed my life to such an extent that I had not left a single stone unturned. I truthfully believed in those days that I didn't know anything to anyone. I expressed my beliefs and hesitation to Don Juan. Don Juan said that I had indeed reviewed my life thoroughly, but he added that I was far from being free of indebtedness. How about your ghosts, he went on, those you can no longer touch. And this concludes part two of The Active Side of Infinity. The final installment will air on my show next week. Until then, thank you for listening, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope 105 FM on the Jackalope Media Network.